Every trip to Walmart is an adventure. I'm always reluctant to go into America's largest store because each trip feels like the Lord of the Rings. You know, if you don't know the Lord of the Rings, if you haven't seen the movies, you, kind of a way to sum it up is that the whole time they're just walking somewhere. That's what every trip to Walmart feels like, endless walking, except there are people everywhere pressing in on every side, more intimidating in these days of COVID-19. But the people that fill the aisles of America's most popular store is a golden opportunity to partake in one of America's favorite pastimes, people watching. Perhaps there is no better place in our community to go people watching than Walmart. You know, just one aspect of the people watching you can hone in on at Walmart is watching parents interact with their children. There are two extremes you may witness in the aisles of Walmart when it comes to parenting. On the one end of the spectrum, you may witness the child who annoys and nags their parents to the point where the parent then berates and belittles the child. I have heard many a parent cuss out their children in the middle of Walmart. On the other end of the spectrum, you may witness a, a child dressed up like it's Halloween because little Miss Princess can wear whatever she wants whenever she wants. This is the child who throws the tantrum and is then placated by the parent who indulges the child with whatever he or she wants. Now, before we're too harsh or overly critical, we should say that parenting is really hard, that parenting is difficult. We should leave some space to be gracious. Now, with that caveat out of the way, we can evaluate both of these extremes, probably stereotypical scenarios, found in the aisles of Walmart by saying that neither of these extremes operates from the motive of having the child's best interest in mind. Rather, the motive is having the parent's best interest in mind. You think about it. So the parent who berates and belittles their child does not, at least in that instance, first care about the child's behavior. That parent cares first about how the, his child's behavior affects him, how it makes him look. He doesn't want his kid to bother him or make him look bad, so he yells or uses whatever means to stop out and control that behavior. The parent who indulges and spoils his child also, in that instance, does not care first about the child's behavior or development, but cares first about himself. He cares more about his kid liking him than the kid growing up well. So he'll give his child whatever he or she wants. Now all this talk about parenting. What's up with that? In the passage in front of us today from 1 Corinthians, Paul calls himself the Corinthians' father in the gospel. That is, he's the one who first told them the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners. They first believed this gospel message when Paul told them about it. So as their father in the gospel, Paul wanted the best for his children. Because he cared about their development and how they were supposed to live as Christians, he knew that what was going on in this city of Corinth and the church there just couldn't continue. Not because of how it affected him, but because how it would affect them. 
Like any good parent, Paul wanted to do what he could with the influence he had to set his children on the right track. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 21. If you're not looking at it yet, look at there with me. Uh, if you're not looking at it throughout our time, you might be lost during this time. Because this is what we do at Old Oak. Just each week, we take a portion of God's word. And we say we expound it. We look at what's there, and we see what's its original message, and how does it apply to us today. So, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. The main point that we should take away from Paul speaking to the Corinthian situation here is that we need help to grow as Christians. We need help. So that the gospel we believe in our heads shows up in how we live. We need help to grow in this. Like a good parent, Paul wants to help his children grow. And he's going to do so here through positive reinforcement, kind of the first half of this paragraph, verses 14 to 17. And then negative reinforcement, second half of this paragraph, verses 18 to 21. He wants to help his children in the gospel grow. So we'll first, we'll look at positive reinforcement. We'll walk through verses 14 to 17, just see how they fit together. All right? Paul uses verse 14 to transition to a new line of thought and to set the tone for what follows after this verse. From the outset of this paragraph, Paul sets the tone about what his goal is for the Corinthians. So as he wrote way back in verse 6 in chapter 4, he instructs them here again, for their benefit. But notice here how he states his goal. He first states it negatively. He says what his goal is not. His goal is not to shame them. You look there in verse 14. Now, very soon in the letter, as in like next chapter and the chapter after that, Paul's going to write about things that the Corinthians, he says, should be ashamed of. That's not what he's doing here. All that he's talked about so far about these divisions over certain teachers in the church, about them growing dull to the gospel message, about them getting entangled with the goods and messages of the culture around them. All of that he's been talking about since chapter 1, verse 10. All of this came with the goal, he says, of admonishing them. Probably not a word you have in your everyday vocabulary. I admonish you. This word admonish has more than just a negative function of warning about what's bad. It also has a positive function to encourage toward what is good. That's Paul's MO throughout the letter. He doesn't just say, Corinthians, you guys are screwing up. Stop it. He says more than that. He says, you guys are screwing up. 
Here is the better, more excellent way. Prime example, chapter 12, verse 31. He says that straight up. I, show you more, I will show you a more excellent way. See, it follows the pattern of the Lord, right? So more than the Lord withhold, wanting to withhold us from something good, the Lord leads us into something better. That's how the Lord operates. So why does Paul want to encourage them to what is good? Why does he want to admonish them? What's his heart behind this? I think we could see it in two little words. They are his beloved children. That's what he sees them as. He has a unique care and responsibility for them as that of a father. Like a father, he wants what's best for his kids. Like a father, he wants to lead his kids in the right direction. Why? Well, because he loves them. Friends, think of all the interactions you have with other people, especially the people who are close to you. Whether it's your kids, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your fellow church members, your friends, your neighbors. What is your goal in all of these interactions? What's your heart behind it? Why do you act the way you act? Why do you say what you say? Is what you say and what you do out of love for that person? Does it have the goal of seeing what's best happen to that person? Does it have the goal of seeing that person be built up? Sometimes, and we're reminded here, sometimes what's best for the people in our lives, the people who, who we love, sometimes what's best is to recognize that they're on the wrong track and it's to point that out to them and it's to help them follow in the better way of the Lord. We're going to get more on that later. So here, verse 14, Paul set the tone. He treats them as his beloved children. He wants to bring them into the right path to admonish them, encourage them towards what's right. Next verse, in verse 15, he establishes their need for correction. And then he's, he's going to prepare for his main command that's going to come in verse 16. So here's their situation, verse 15. He says, they had countless guides in Christ. These guides likely refer to the church leaders over whom the Corinthians divided. These are the church leaders who came after Paul had left them. These are the church leaders that Paul had talked about back in chapter 3, those who built upon his foundation, those who came just after Paul. Now, Paul contrasts these countless guides with himself. There's a contrast he sets up. So the first element of this contrast you see is just straight-up numbers. There are many guides, but there's one father in the gospel. You think about it, even if these teachers were faithful, it would have resulted in the Corinthians being pulled in many different directions. And what they needed to do was follow the singular direction of the gospel message that Paul originally preached to them, that message of Jesus Christ crucified. That's their singular direction. So Paul contrasts this many guides with just one father. He also, this other element of the contrast comes in just the titles. You have many guides, but Paul is their father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Guide versus father. Now, the guide is more than just like a guide through a hike or a forest. This is not Gandalf or Gollum guiding them through Middle Earth. Another nugget for you Lord of the Rings fans. Sorry if you're left behind there. Back then, guides, as Paul says, were entrusted by fathers and parents to bring their children to and from school 
and basically to oversee their conduct. Paul's not necessarily putting down these other teachers, these other guides. What he wants to emphasize is that he has a unique relationship with them that others don't. He was with them from the beginning. He didn't bring about their conversion, no, but he was the one who first preached the gospel to them. I wonder, Christian, do you know who that person is for you? And if you have a special place in your heart for him or her, the person who first made the gospel known to you. Paul planted the seed, as he's already said. He laid the foundation. This gives him just a unique bond with the Corinthians, something that can't be duplicated. And so here, this relationship he has with them, that's the basis on which he makes his appeal in verse 16. Look there. He says, I urge you then, basically, I urge you, in light of my unique relationship and care for you, to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. You know, on the face of it, if we're just aware and attuned, this is a pretty bold statement. I wonder how many of you would have confidence enough to say this, imitate me. Now, we got to understand, Paul knows that he is who he is, not because of himself, but because of the grace of God. He will state that straight up in this letter later on in it. Further, as he'll go on to say in the next verse and later on in the letter also, the Corinthians should imitate Paul only insofar as Paul imitates Christ. Paul's not the original guy. So when you call Jesus Lord like Paul did, you communicate that Jesus is the one you listen to, not yourself. You communicate that Jesus is the one you submit to, not your own desires and ways. You communicate when you say Jesus is Lord that Jesus is the one you follow, not yourself. And we should say here, verse 16, underneath Paul's appeal for the Corinthians to imitate him is an understanding. See, Paul understands that the Christian life is more than learning the right information. It's more than that. The Corinthians, you think the Corinthians could likely rehearse the facts of the gospel up and down, just as good as anybody else. This means they could rehearse the facts of the gospel, but it didn't change how they live. This means that if you claim to be a Christian, even if you know the facts about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners, rising again, but those facts have not drilled down into your heart at the deepest level and changed just the basis for how you live, then you should wonder whether or not you truly believe those facts of the gospel. A true understanding, a true faith in Jesus always leads to a changed heart, a changed direction of life. Paul gets that across in all of his letters, including 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15, his second letter here. He says there, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So you see, like he rehearses the facts of the gospel, Jesus died for you. So what? So now you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for Jesus. There's a change that happens, right? It's more than just new information. It's a new direction of life. Friends, God helps the people he's saved through the gospel. 
he helps them now live by the gospel. He does this through giving us more than just more information. He gives us people. Gives us people. Real life examples. Church leaders like Paul would especially help the Corinthians figure out just what does it mean to follow Jesus in this world. For instance, Paul for the Corinthians would help them figure out what does it mean to have the cross of Jesus so at the core of our identity that we no longer need to reach for status in this world. By looking at Paul, they could see someone who truly did not care if he had riches here because he knew he really had riches in heaven because of Christ. They could see a real-life example of what this looks like in Paul. So since Paul wasn't with them in person, as he goes on in verse 17, he's going to send them Timothy in order to help them carry out the command of verse 16. So, th- so in order for them to imitate Paul, he's going to send them Timothy, who himself is a faithful disciple of Jesus. So again, like a good father, Paul gives his children what they need in order to grow. Verse 17, he says that Timothy, another one of who is his children in the Lord, he says that Timothy will remind them of his ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Again, Paul sends them more than just a letter. Paul sends them a person. Timothy would help them show not what it, likes, what it means to be on the cutting edge of Christianity. Timothy would help show the Corinthians simply what it looks like to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. Consider how Paul commissioned Timothy elsewhere. You may know these verses from 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in purity, in love. God saved us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you have not believed the gospel this morning, we implore you to do that, to turn from living for yourself and to turn to trust in Jesus alone. You see, we need to trust in Jesus, not in a a certain set of rules. You say Jesus came, just like what Paul knows, Jesus came here to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not show up and say, all right, these are the 12 rules you need to follow, and then you can make it into heaven. Jesus came. He he knows we need more than that. We need more than just content. We need somebody in our place. We need a substitute. So, friend, if you have not taken hold of that substitute, the one who lived perfectly when we didn't, the one who took our sin that we could not carry on the cross, the one who rose again, the Son of God, take hold of Jesus today. But then we say that's not the end of the story. It's not. After that, there is this trust and faith in Jesus means a new heart, a new direction, a new way of life. So in order to grow and learn about what it means to follow Jesus in all of life, God's provided us with help. He helps us. Here, he helps us, he gives us positive examples of other people who follow Jesus, who we can imitate. This is the takeaway here in the first part of this paragraph. So I think there are at least four ways we can apply this, right? Other people in our lives who can help us follow Jesus simply by us imitating them. First, 
Friend, you need more than content. You need people. You need more than content. You need people. If God intends for us not just to believe the truth of the gospel in our heads, but to embrace it in our hearts and live it out in our lives, then we need help from others to see just what this looks like. This is important for us, especially especially in how saturated our age is in just information and content. It's everywhere. Friends, you need more. We'll just rubber hits the road here. You need more than just to listen to recordings of sermons on radio, TV, and the internet. You need more than that. Seriously do. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but those are only half the equation. You need to interact with others. You need to develop relationships. You need to see how other Christians live so that you can be encouraged and so that you can encourage them. You know, as faithful and helpful as teaching you here online or on the radio might be, just consider, it comes from somebody who's not your pastor. I'm not trying to puff us up here, but I'm saying it, the teaching you here online or on the radio or on TV, it comes from somebody who doesn't know you, who doesn't even have a chance to know you. The pastors you hear from here, Lord willing, know you know you personally, and you get to know us. That's special. That makes this teaching time here special because it's to real people coming from a real person. Now, so that would tell us don't treat this time just as content information download. Okay, treat this as truth. We all hear together and seek to live out together. And truth, we get to see others live out as well and be helped, and we can imitate. So you need more than content. You need people. Second, be close enough to other Christians, especially your pastors, so that you can imitate them. Be close to faithful Christians. That's the application. Be close to faithful Christians. Interesting in verse 16, Paul has to tell the Corinthians to imitate him. This must mean that we have to make a conscious effort and choice about the people who influence us. This must mean we have to make a conscious effort to notice what it is about the faithful Christians around us that's worth imitating. Conscious effort to notice it. So friends, spend time with faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Have longer, more meaningful, more frequent conversations with them. Heck, Spend time doing ordinary stuff with them and just see how that faithful brother or sister goes about it. Notice their demeanor. Notice how they speak to people. Notice how they pray. That's how God can help us grow. Y'all, I would say, do this especially with your pastors. That's why we're here. I mean, you don't have to come up to me or to Bill or Don or Dean and just say, hey, I want to spend time with you so I can imitate you. But you can say, like, hey, I know we've never done this, but can we, can we go to lunch? Can we have a conversation? Can we talk about what's going on in my life and where I'm at in the Word and kind of where I'm at with the Lord? And if you do this, if you spend time with your pastors, you'll find that you can imitate Bill Barbie's humility, his honesty, his quiet service. 
you spend time with your pastors, you will find that you can imitate Don Lucas's kindness and his desire to see God's glory in his word. You will find that you can imitate Dean Velasco's careful biblical wisdom, his public witness with those who don't know Jesus. And more than just elders, as I pray my way through the member role even, I often thank God for what he has done through each person. And I often think of a Christ-like trait that that person displays and that I can, with God's help, imitate. Be close enough to other faithful Christians that you can notice, that you can notice them, what God's done with them, through them, and you can imitate them. Third way we can apply this. Be careful about who you admire because who you admire is who you'll end up imitating. Be careful about who you admire. You know, imitation does take conscious effort, but imitation can also happen subconsciously, just kind of accidentally. We can't help but imitating our parents. Like, that's why the progressive commercials are so funny. (laughs) But we imitate all the time without knowing. We imitate other people. We imitate not just the other people around us. You know, we imitate the people we see on TV and online. I find myself, I I watched a show recently uh, with Kate, and I say one character's catchphrase from this show all the time, just subconsciously. I imitate. And in in serious note, seriously though, I have a concern that many in Christ's church, especially here in the States, unknowingly imitate the crankiness, the self-righteousness, the meanness, the lack of empathy, the lack of charity, the lack of deep and honest thinking modeled by our pundits and modeled by our politicians. I have a concern that we imitate that. Be careful about who you admire and who you spend time around, even those you spend time watching. Fourth way, we can apply this. Be someone who others can imitate. This might be the most intimidating one, right? Be, uh, be someone who others can imitate. This is especially important for pastors, right? Which is why most of the qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy relate to character, not giftedness. But for all of us, I wonder, did you ever think that you would have a chance to be a model? You, you have a chance to be a model. No, not, you may not strut down the runway, But you have the chance to be used by God to model what it looks like to follow Jesus to your fellow Christians. Christian, is your life one that others should imitate? Especially if you've been a Christian for some time, especially if you've been here among this local church for some time. Christian, who are you helping? You know, you have fellow Christians here who are younger than you. You have fellow Christians here who are newer to the faith than you. What if God placed you here, not just to squeeze all that you can for yourself? What if God placed you here to help the other people who are here? You don't got to do anything radical. Just talk to new people. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Ask good questions. Be their friend. And go from there. Hey, perhaps read the Bible together. 
I mean, hey, you should be reading the Bible on your own anyway. Why not do it along somebody, alongside somebody else? So there it is. Paul's positive reinforcement to encourage them to go in the right way. And the way he encourages them is by offering an example of a real-life person who follows Jesus, someone who they know, someone who they can imitate. Growing up, when I had friends over the house, parents are gracious, we have, I have friends over the house all the time, our refuge away from the adults was the basement. The basement was the kids' domain. This was not Lord of the Rings, this was Lord of the Flies. This was the mantra of judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Native to the basement were the boyhood antics of wrestling, video games, and junk food. It was free reign, that is, until it was time for everybody to go home. We would have to collect the empty pop cans, collect the pizza crusts, and try to fix the couch we broke when we jumped on it one too many times. At the Corinthian church, it's been free reign. The house was a mess, but now dad is on his way home. It's time to get the house in order. This is where we see Paul's negative reinforcement in verses 18 to 21. Let's read those verses again. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now just starting off here in verse 18, you may remember that we saw this word arrogant show up last week in verse 6 of chapter 4. It's that same word translated as puffed up. In verse 18... Notice, Paul's addressing just one particular group in the church. He says, some of you are arrogant. Now, this should tell us a couple of things. It should tell us, as we've said throughout our time in Corinthians, it's so often the case that the greatest threats to our walk with Christ come from within us, not necessarily from outside of us. And those are the threats that we just don't take seriously. This also tells us that there, is, there was one group of people in the Corinthian church exercising a disproportionate amount of influence over the entire church. So just quick-fire, rapid-fire application. Before you gossip, before you are careless about how you speak about somebody else, before you murmur, know from this example here in Corinth that it doesn't take a lot of people to do damage and to divide a church. It just doesn't. So here, what's going on? Verse 18, the arrogance of some had spread throughout the Corinthian church. It's what Paul has been discussing at length so far in this letter. This arrogance goes in the form of this, that more important than being faithful to the message of Jesus Christ crucified, the Corinthians wanted to be the elite the successful of their own culture. And they would go after the teachers who would help them achieve this goal. And as Paul discusses here in verse 18, they doubled down on this mindset because they thought Paul would never come back to them. 
They could justify leaving behind the message of the gospel that Paul preached to them because they claimed that Paul himself left them behind. In verse 19, Paul quickly corrects this and says this is not true. He fully intends to come back to them. Notice he qualifies it by saying, if the Lord wills. Paul was no stranger to change of plans. Paul embraced Proverbs 16, 9. You may know that verse. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Just as a a quick aside, I love the little details throughout Paul's letters, especially here. I love Paul's little qualifiers. Back in verse 15, he says he is their father. He qualifies it by saying, in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Here in verse 18, he says, I plan to come to you, qualifies it, if the Lord wills. Just these little details show that when you pour out Paul, the first thing that comes out is reverence to God, submission to Christ. That's the first thing that comes out, just when you pour out Paul. Back on track here, what's going on? Paul plans to come to them, and he's going to find out the truth about what's going on. He would find out and show them that this arrogant group that wielded a disproportionate amount of influence over the entire church, this group was all bark, no bite. As they put it in Texas, this group was all hat and no cattle. This is because he says in verse 20 that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What does Paul mean by that? The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Well, friends, as we've been talking on Wednesday nights each and every week, it's come up. One of the most important things, context. Context, context, context. So what does Paul mean by power? Well, just look before what he's talked about. Remember chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 20, has a backdrop. When he says that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, what he means is really what he said previously. It doesn't matter that if you can preach in a way that gets applause. It doesn't matter that if you can preach in a way that moves people to tears, that equips them with life skills. If you don't preach about how God saves people from their sin and the judgment that their sin deserves, then what does any of that other stuff matter anyway? If you don't preach that, then you've led people astray. So how do we make sure we are a church not of empty talk, but of divine power? Well, friends, it's only if we stick to the word of the cross. The message that Paul calls the power of God in chapter 1, verse 18 It's this message that the world deems weak and foolish. It's through this message that God changes the leopard's spots and melts the heart of stone. This is the message of true power. Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So Paul is going to come back to them. He's going to find out that he wants to find the house in order. 
all tidied up. To do that, they need to start following Jesus again. Walk in the way of the cross. Walk in humility and love and unity. To get the house in order, they need to start preaching the cross again. The real way God saves people and gives them life. Not preaching the wisdom du jour of their culture. Verse 21, he leaves them a choice. You can see that there. He says he can whip them into shape himself or they can get started on their own. We'll understand this verse better if we keep in mind the father-child relationship that Paul's talked about throughout this paragraph. Like any father, he prefers to deal with them gently, but he's willing to do what's necessary in order to lead them in the right way. So for either option, we should remember that verse 14 is in place, that Paul loves the Corinthians. So this is the truth, Paul's negative reinforcement here, second half of this paragraph. This is a truth that we need to know, and we have a hard time remembering and understanding. Correction can come from a place of love. Correcting somebody can come from a place of love. Now, there's a chance that it can't, but the Bible says that God disciplines those he loves, disciplines those he loves. You know, one of the most profound ways that God judges people is by ceasing to discipline them while they're here on earth. It's by him just removing the restraints. In essence, it's him saying, okay, if, you, if this is how you want to live, there you go. I will give you over to it completely. You want to see an example of this in the word? Look at the life of King Saul. God just gave, it over, gave him over to it, to envy, to, to anger. You know, this, this truth that correction can come from a place of love. Recently, I felt led to correct and confront someone I know. Uh, this person is married, identifies as a Christian, and he was overtly flirting with another woman who didn't know he was married. I, I, I knew this girl who he was flirting with. And it was not just a passing comment either. This was continually reaching out to her over the span of several days. So I found out about it. I reached out to him. I told him to stop. I acknowledged, say, listen, I don't know everything that's going on in your marriage. I get it. But what God would have for you is to be faithful to him by being faithful to your wife. Obedience to the Lord, I told him, is what's right, and it, it's what's best for you. More than just what's right, it's what's best for you. You know, I told him, I, hey, I'm not going to tell anybody right now. I don't want to embarrass you. I want to give you a chance to stop. And I told him, I said, all of, I'm saying all of this to you because I love you. And I want to help you in whatever way I can. Friends, I think we're too quiet. I think we are too quiet. I think we, we watch people destroy themselves all the time. All the time. It's heartbreaking. We watch them just stay silent. And, you know, this story that I share about me, that this is a huge exception to the rule for me because I remain too quiet all the time too. Y'all, we need a little bit more boldness about calling people to repent. We just do. Listen, I get it. There is a wrong way to do this. I get that you don't want to come across as judgmental and self-righteous. That's fine. Then don't. But don't let the alternative be not saying anything. Not saying anything. Don't let that be the alternative of doing this wrongly. 
Reminds me of this quote from Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, you may have heard uh, this quote before. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. These verses about how Paul talks to the Corinthians, saying, listen, I'm going to pull you back if you keep going this way. Makes me think of my role as one of your pastors. My job isn't every week to make you feel guilty. It's not my job. But if there's something going on that needs correction, because I love y'all, I want to humbly admonish you to the right way. So as we say that love should lead us to boldness, so also our remaining capacity to sin should lead us to receive correction when we need it. So the way Paul relates to the Corinthians as a father does to his children reflects the way God, our Father, relates to us. I think this passage should remind us of God's kindness, his wisdom, his care, of knowing what his children need. You know, in his mercy, God saved us through Christ's death in our place. But our salvation is so much more than just an escape from hell and entrance into heaven. Our salvation is so much more than that. Our salvation is new life now. And in this new life, God knows that we need help. He knows it. He knows that we'll need to grow. He knows that we will have temptation. He knows that sin will cling closely in our hearts. So he's kind. And he gives gifts to help us. And one of those gifts that we've been talking about today is people. People who help us live this new life of following Jesus by modeling what it looks like themselves. People who call us out when we stray. Friends, let's receive this gift from God. Hey, and let's be this gift from God for others also. Let's pray. Father, oh to grace, how great a debtor. Daily we are constrained to be. Every day we need you to bind our wandering hearts to you. Lord, we need that in the form of people. We thank you for your kindness, God, in, in saving us to yourself and saving us to a family. Lord, please help us grow through, the, through our fellow brothers and sisters. And Lord, please help us receive correction and give it when necessary to do so in humility and love. And Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have given us what we need, what we wouldn't have asked for. Thank you that you've given us in our salvation more than just content of this is how you should live. Thank you for giving us a substitute. It's from this basis that we now live and we now want to follow the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we need your help if we're going to do this. So please come and help us. Glorify your great name through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.